welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, and awakening. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and this is the first in a series of conversations with my friend and meditation teacher, Shinzen Young. Shinzen Young is an American mindfulness teacher and neuroscience research consultant. His systematic approach to categorizing, adapting, and teaching meditation, known as unified mindfulness, has resulted in collaborations with Harvard Medical School, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Vermont in the burgeoning field of contemplative neuroscience. After majoring in Asian languages at UCLA, Shinzen entered a PhD program in Buddhist studies at the University of Wisconsin. As part of his thesis research, he lived as a Shingon monk for three years at Mount Koya, Japan. Shinzen is known for his interactive algorithmic approach to mindfulness and often uses mathematical metaphors to illustrate meditative phenomena. He's the author of the books The Science of Enlightenment, Natural Pain Relief, and also of numerous audio programs. Shinzen has been my teacher, personally, for about 20 years. I first met him even earlier than that when I was the acquisitions editor for Sounds True. My job back then consisted of going through piles and piles of audio cassette tapes that people would send to the company in the hopes of being published. So much of what we received was hilarious or useless or boring or some combination of all of those. Then one day, a little white, squarish cardboard box arrived, containing maybe five cassettes of Shinzen's talks. I picked one at random, and I remember I was intrigued by the title, Thanatos and Eros, which I thought sounded cool for a meditation discussion. And by the time I was done... I was sold. We brought Shinzen into the studio, and very soon I started studying with him as his student. Later, as the editorial director of Sounds True, I edited Shinzen's timeless classic audio entitled The Science of Enlightenment. And recently I edited his book by the same name. So we've been interacting and co-creating for many, many years. And over these many years, I've come to deeply appreciate the nuances of Shinzen's outlook, even where I disagree with it, as well as the fact that he's easily one of the most creative and unusual Dharma teachers of our time, and a really fun and interesting guy to talk to. In this session, Shinzen and I talk about the relationship between mindfulness practice, as it's usually defined, and non-dual type practices, or non-practices, if you like. We also talk about the way that focusing on the details of sensory experience relates to focusing on awareness itself, micro-cessations, nano-nirvanas, and the thinness and lightness of the screen of awareness, and much more that I think you'll really enjoy. So without further ado, I give you Shinzen Young. Welcome, Shinzen, to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Excellent. Looking forward to being deconstructed. As I, I hope it's the same for you. It is. I think everyone uh, listening is looking forward to that. 
Well, it's been about um, 20 years at this point that I've been aware of your work and working with you. And I can't tell you how delighted and pleased I am to have you on the show. That's a ditto. Over the many years, you've become my main teacher in all of this. So I will try to both communicate thanks and at the same time, let go of that relationship during the podcast and be the more probing interviewer than a student. Excellent. So I put out the word to the internet. I'm like, I'm going to talk to Shinzen. I know you guys are all interested in this stuff. You've heard all his other podcasts. What do you want to know about? What would you like me to ask him? And I got some response on Twitter. And some of them were asking me about non-duality or more Advaita-type practices. And this is something that, of course, I'm very interested in. I've wrote a little book about it. I have a lot of practices in that direction. But it's not something that you've talked about very much until recently. The little bit I've heard you teach on that or talk about, it's been quite interesting. And you and I personally have had some discussion about it. But I thought I would ask you, first of all, how you feel those two directions in meditation, that of mindfulness and the more Advaita type practices, fit together. How you see those cohering in a single consistent framework. Cool. Well, as always, I think I would start by having a disambiguation page. It's in general been my experience that unproductive conversations or conversations where there's a lot of heat and little light tend to be a product of two things. One is the uh, people's egos, that's understandable. And the other one is a lack of what Confucius called Zhengming. Zhengming literally means clarifying the name, so it means disambiguating the terminology. So it's a matter of making an effort to be clear about what we mean by what, and it's making an effort on the part of the teacher to stick to that and be careful that they say what they mean. So what do we mean by mindfulness? Oh, my God. Well, I already wrote 80 pages of dense material just talking about that. What is mindfulness? And what do we mean by Advaita? Well, we can hear a lot of different uh, ideas about that. So I think just the disambiguation page alone on this conversation, that might be several hours right there. So let's see if I can give the top page summary. But of course, the real executive summary is these words mean rather different things in different contexts. Mindfulness is the whole spectrum of things. Advaita is a whole spectrum of things. So one thing for sure is let's make sure how people are using these words. So the way I like to think about mindfulness is, and of course, this is just my personal choice, I actually define something I call recently modern mindfulness. So I'm going to say that modern mindfulness is 
contemplative practice evolving in concert with science or contemplative practice co-evolving with science. So that's modern mindfulness. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but I would say that I would prefer to define contemplative practice as developing three core attentional skills, concentration, clarity, and equanimity, which I've talked about at great length everywhere, and applying those skills to optimizing happiness. So I can give a crystal clear a description of what it means to develop these skills and the ways in which that empowers all dimensions of happiness. So clearly, I am deciding to define mindfulness very broadly as essentially contemplative practice from the viewpoint that any historical contemplative practice can be analyzed in terms of how it speaks about, develops, and applies those three core attentional skills. Yeah. You know, I think for the purpose of the discussion and the question, I'm just going to make an assumption about what people are trying to ask with that question and assume that they are defining mindfulness to mean something like focusing attention on the details of moment-by-moment sensory experience something just pretty basic like that, whatever type of sensory experience that is. And I think in terms of Advaita, they are, again, I'm making assumptions here, but describing a range of techniques that attempt to pay attention to awareness itself. Yes. Well, that narrows the conversation very much. However, the things that I said are still relevant Because I think limiting the word mindfulness to mean focusing on details and limiting Advaita or non-dual, let's use the English word non-dual, same thing, to awareness itself. On the mindfulness side, that is definitely limiting it way too much for my taste. On the non-dual side, maybe not quite so bad a limitation. So I would just say, within my broader way of defining mindfulness, both focusing on the details and being aware of awareness itself, both come under the category of mindfulness, as I describe it. Because both of those practices involve developing concentration, clarity, and equanimity. Now, of course, I can already hear people saying, oh, no, no, no. Non-dual awareness is not about developing anything. It's about finding the primordial perfection that's already there. In fact, it is the very antithesis of a cultivated improvement. It's a deep realization that there's no need to improve. And perhaps even trying to improve is... Problematic. Yes. So, to that I say, well, blame Michael Taft, because he didn't (laughs) give me enough time to clearly 
expatiate on what I mean by the technical term develop. <laughs> now is your chance. <laughs> because I have given a lot of thought to this issue since I want to be able to have a paradigm whereby we can capitalize on this perhaps tipping point in the history of humanity that we now have a word that everybody's comfortable with that means a path to enlightenment. Holy crap. So I won't go into it because I know what you're asking and uh, I could go in a thousand directions. But let me just say that as I define the word develop, there are different ways in which those skills are developed. Some of those ways are direct. I do this, I do this, I do this, and it elevates. And it's like lifting weights and I can see improvement in my concentration, clarity, and equanimity. That's a, that's a direct path and a lot of mindfulness in the sense of focusing on details of sensory experience would certainly be developing those skills directly. The details are the clarity, the focusing is the concentration, the letting it come and go without push and pull is the equanimity, right? And you're doing techniques that obviously directly develop those skills. However, I include under the definition of develop the possibility of approaches that indirectly develop those skills. I'm going to say that anybody who is deeply successful in the aware of awareness kinds of practices or more broadly a non-dual kind of practice, anyone who is deeply successful with those practices will have acquired concentration, clarity, and equanimity indirectly based on the discovery that they made that there's nothing that needs to be changed. That discovery will impart those skills to a person. So that's what I have to say about that. And if they haven't, then I don't think that person has really discovered the nature of awareness. Because if you discover the nature of awareness, you are detached enough from the tug of past and future to hold your attention anywhere you want in the present, etc., etc. Okay, so narrowing the question to the uh, specific quote definitions, we're using definition now in the original Greek sense of the word, which means narrowing things. Okay, if we talk about mindfulness as focusing on the details, and if we talk about non-dual as being aware of awareness, then I would say that the relationship between these two approaches would be one of convergence. A little bit of the sense of a, a sequence converging in calculus. So I think they both converge to the same limit. If you're well instructed in the, quote, focusing on the details practice and keep it up to an industrial strength level and the same for the aware of awareness practice, they should converge as far as the liberation aspect of happiness goes to something pretty similar. So this is interesting. Let's say that we back off a little bit on the question of whether you have to make effort or not, and instead emphasize 
this convergence aspect, like how mindfulness defined this way and non-duality defined this way could potentially converge. How would you imagine a mindfulness-type practitioner, someone who's got this industrial strength level of concentration, sensory clarity, which typically means details but doesn't have to? Very important point. And these skills are developed to industrial strength. How would you imagine them then using those skills to investigate their own awareness? I don't have to imagine it. It's actually one of my standard techniques. Unpack that for us. Sure. So let's say that you want to study with me. So we have to start somewhere. I could give you a choice of uh, four basic training quadrants that pretty much partition the contemplative traditions of the world, East, West, Ancient, Modern. Once again, everything is technically defined with me, which is good, but it's also a little bit annoying because you have to listen carefully to the definitions and so forth. But some techniques come under a, a category that I call appreciate, which is what you're sort of talking about when you say, quote, focus on the details. You're bringing CC&E, concentration, clarity, and equanimity, to whatever sensory experience presents itself. Well, I call those techniques appreciating the senses. <laughs> or since it's the senses that creates our perception that there's a self inside and a world outside, another way to say it is that it's appreciating self and world as they present themselves sensorially in real time. So that's sort of appreciation practice. Then there are explicit transcendence practices. Those are practices that try to point you to uh, a direct perception of the primordial perfection that precedes, follows, and pervades everything that anyone sees or hears or feels on the inside or outside and everything that they do say or think, however virtuous or not virtuous, that may be. They point you directly to that primordial perfection in what you see, hear, feel, do, say, and think. So the non-dual practices come under that rubric. There's also what I call nurture positivity, which is the attempt to strengthen positive inner forces so that your go-to habits are more skillful, your go-to thoughts are more adaptive, your go-to emotions are more pleasant, and you can have a sense of identifying with your archetypal representation of goodness and so forth. Loving kindness is an example of that. Deity yoga is an example of that. Cognitive reframing is an example of that. And visualizing skillful actions either in the character domain or in the performance domain are also examples of those sort of nurture positive. You're trying to create and even strengthen positive sanskaras, positive habit forces within you. So I call those positivity or nurture positive 
approaches. And then there's a whole other quadrant of transactions. And so, but we're not trying to unpack your whole system right here. Uh, Yeah, let me just finish it and then I'll get back. Okay. So just the fourth quadrant is learning how to express that primordial perfection in uh, how your body moves and how the words come out of your mouth and the thoughts pop into your head. That's very much emphasized in Zen in general and Rinzai Zen in specific. So if someone comes to study with me, I give them a choice where they want to start. Typically, they're going to start with an appreciation practice, very much like what you're talking about, quote, focusing on the details in an unrestricted way. So I'm going to call that note everything. So I'm going to describe briefly the note everything technique. Then I'm going to show you how with a very slight change of parameters, that becomes a self-inquiry technique. (laughs) So when you do note everything, you let your awareness freely float between visual, auditory, and somatic experience, inner or outer. And when you're drawn to a new experience, you acknowledge that, and one of two things will happen. Either the experience will vanish instantly, in which case you acknowledge that, or it doesn't, in which case you sort of soak your awareness into it for a moment. A moment meaning a fraction of a second to several seconds, depending on what average pace tends to work for you. So your focus range is everything, and your technique is noting. You could accompany that noting with mental or spoken label like see, hear, feel, if you wished. And as I set it up, if the tug of the senses happened to spontaneously let go, you'd Note that experience as absolute rest or a cessation. Okay, but you're not trying to get to that restful experience necessarily. It's a logical possibility. So you're noting everything. This pretty much sounds like what you're talking about under the heading of mindfulness, correct? In the small meaning of mindfulness? Yes, I think that's more or less exactly what we're talking about. So I set you up with that and you'd start to get some traction with it. And then I'd ask you to notice a kind of spatial metaphor. It's not a big reality thing. It's just a way that your visual mind might represent this process. If you think of the tug of the senses as pulling you in a certain direction, You're pulled to a sound on the right. You're pulled to that visual object in front of you. You're pulled to that body sensation in your gut. You're pulled to that mental talk on the right side of your head, et cetera, et cetera. So the direction where your attention is spontaneously pulled could be thought of as the head of an arrow that's pointing somewhere and that arrowhead sort of moves from place to place. Sometimes it points towards your mental screen or your emotional body or where you're hearing your mental talk. Sometimes it points out, etc. But it's pointing in a direction. Now, you could also imagine that if that's the point of an arrow, that that arrow might be attached to a shaft. Notice the mincing language that I'm using. 
might, could, not a big deal, <laughs> okay? That's important <laughs> because this kind of spatial metaphor might present itself, and if it doesn't, it's not a big deal, etc., etc. You always have to be careful when you're teaching people because, as you know, as a teacher, as soon as you describe something to someone, it becomes yet another thing that they're worried about doing wrong or not enough or etc. So let me see if I can describe what you're talking about in another way. You seem to be describing the very subtle three-dimensional visual representation of the world that is going on sort of subconsciously or even unconsciously for people as their attention is drawn to different objects of awareness, correct? Exactly. That map, which is subliminal, usually. And therefore, if your awareness is going here or there, and if that's the point of an arrow, you can imagine that there might be a shaft associated with that arrow. Yes. And the other end of that shaft, the knock end, N-O-C-K, where it would be put into the string, the other end of that shaft might usually be in one location, maybe your chest or your head, or it itself might actually move around just like the head of the arrow moves around. Either of those scenarios is just as good as the other. But what you sort of have here is what might be mathematically, metaphorically described as a free attention vector. It's a free vector. It's not bound any place. The knock end can be anywhere, and the arrow can point anywhere. So most people, if they do the kind of, quote, mindfulness that we've been describing, would have a sense that they can get that metaphor. Now, if we're doing sort of classical mindfulness practice, say with the Burmese Sayadaws like Upandita, what they're going to say is, if it doesn't instantly vanish, pour your awareness down that shaft, onto it, into it, soak into it, know it, in a penetrative biblical way. Of course, if it immediately vanishes, then you just acknowledge that and move on. So one of the things that distinguishes classical mindfulness as it would be done in Asia from some of the more superficial versions that are taught in the mainstream is that emphasis on penetrative awareness. One of the main distinctions between classical noting practice as it would be done in Burma, say, with someone like Upandita and some of the more mainstream modern forms is that the mainstream modern forms often don't mention that aspect of soaking in and knowing the sensory object almost in a biblical sense, a penetrative knowing. However, according to the Burmese uh, Sayadaws, Burmese masters, that's where it's at. That's one of the main things that makes it work. So if you imagine this metaphor of pouring your attention down a, a hollow arrow shaft, where the reverse end of that shaft might be moving around a little bit, or it might more or less stay in the same place, 
that would be a description of my note everything technique. Now, let's say that we wanted to go from that to a direct pointing, the formless perfection. That's what I call it. I guess some people might call it awareness itself, that I'm comfortable with that. Or the true self, I'm quite comfortable with that, the true witness. Whatever you want to call it is not so important, but to have a direct experience of it is very important. So I'm going to just call it the primordial perfection, the perfection that comes before and after each time-space volume. And if you're really deep into non-duality, it pervades each time-space volume. Let's say that we would like to change the parameters of this technique so that it becomes a self-inquiry technique where we're attempting to be aware of what or who is aware. Well, actually, you could even keep up the same labels, see, hear, feel, like that if you wanted. But the attentional instruction would be different. And it would be different in two contrasting ways. But other than that, it would be exactly the same technique. For one thing, and I think you can probably guess where this is going, instead of the awareness going down the shaft into the sensory target, the awareness goes in the other direction to what's on the other end of the knock end. And instead of there being a sense of continuously pouring awareness, which initially requires a sense of I am meditating, which is okay, you get over that. But with my version of who am I, or who sees, who hears, who feels, you don't even want to have that amount of meditating self there. So you just very lightly and very quickly look back down the opposite end of the arrow. And then the next time the arrow shifts, you lightly and quickly look back and look back and look back and look back. Now we're doing self-inquiry. And you could even be doing the same label, see, hear, feel. But the emphasis is completely different. You're disinterested in knowing the sensory targets. Those labels are now just a timing so that you can get into the rhythm of detecting what's behind that arrow. And if the arrow is always in the same place, fine, but it might move around a lot and still works. And that's that. So just to disambiguate here, are you saying that as the awareness points back along the arrow shaft towards the knock end, the person is detecting the subtle see, hear, feel of the meditator ego? Or are they detecting something different than that? The latter. So can you clarify that slightly? Well, if what you're detecting 
seems to be inside time and space or seems to have any sensory quality at all, then there's an arrow pointing to that. So look behind that arrow. You are developing clarity. It's not a discrimination clarity. It's a detection clarity. And what are you detecting? Well, if you read the classic yoga sutras, yoga nirodha tada drashtuhu swarupe vasthanam. Yoga is chittavritti nirodha, the cessation of the fluctuations of consciousness. Tada drashtuhu swarupe vasthanam. Then and only then does the true observer abide in its true nature. So I'm going to say that what you are detecting is something that is not inside time and space because that's just a fluctuation of consciousness. You could say it's traditionally the true observer or absolute consciousness. Consciousness without content. You know, there's lots of things people say. We can say all those things and that's fine. However, an interesting question is, from the viewpoint of neuroscience, from a hard-nosed materialist biophysical point of view, what is going on here? That's a very interesting question. I have my answer to that question, but that would have to be confirmed by research in the future. But I have a pretty good conjecture as to what it is, even a way that you could describe it to someone who is a pure materialist, and they would say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) So what would be a plausible, purely physical description of what's being detected? Well, the nervous system takes time to process sensory events. Doesn't take much time, but it does take time. And there are a series of processing stations that a signal has to go through before it finally spills out to consciousness, presumably mostly on the cerebral cortex. So that means that between the very instant of the arising of each new sensory event and the moment when that becomes conscious to central awareness, a certain amount of time has passed, maybe 10 milliseconds, maybe 50 milliseconds, maybe even a few hundred milliseconds, Um, maybe even longer. So, In Zen, they have this koan, hear the sound of one hand clapping, hear the sound that's not sound. Actually, in Hinduism, they have a similar term, anahata shabda, the unstruck sound. Once again, the sound that's not sound. Well, what's the sound that's not sound? The sound of the world that's not sound. The sound of your own mental talk that's not sound. Well, it would be what you hear in the first five or 10 or maybe 50 milliseconds. 
But normally there's no you to hear that, no conscious awareness of that, but some part of you hears it, the subconscious. But what if the conscious were to start to hear that? Well, it would be the sound of silence. It would be sound that isn't sound. It would be the instant of the arising. It would be where things come from, which is also where they go to. So if you're constantly adverting your attention, quote, back, metaphorically in space, I'm going to claim that what you're actually doing is adverting your attention back literally in time, trying to get a glimpse of the sight that's not sight, the sound that's not sound, the touch that's not touch yet. So into the pre-processing circuits of the sensory part of the brain. Making them conscious to the surface of the brain and then abiding in that because if you abide in that there's no need for it to be born everything gets resolved at the unborn and you abide in the unborn you're living outside of time and space now, it's interesting to me that from what I understand of your history and biography, you actually initially had a breakthrough in this kind of meditation, correct? That is probably the single most important watershed experience in my whole nearly 50 years now of uh, being engaged in this kind of thing. Absolutely, it was what I just described. It was the koan. It was within the Zen context that, in that the teacher was Japanese and the koan was, answer this question, what are you or who are you? But that's pretty much standard uh, self-inquiry kind of thing. Yep, that is correct. That's why I think the tradition is very valuable and powerful. So interesting, then, that that has not been your typical way of teaching. Until recently, because I couldn't figure out how to fit it within the algorithm of mindfulness. But now I have. I just described it to you. Yes. So something that comes up for me around this, it's a tangential question, is people tend to define what they're seeing here or what they're experiencing as the world being one or some kind of monism or a literal interconnectedness of all things in the external world. And you have just defined it or at least speculated about its possible arising in a neuroscience kind of way or within the human brain. And to just do that even more simply, you could say, rather than it being something that is showing you a deep truth about the external world, it's showing you a deep truth about your own experience of your internal world. And I'm curious if you have an opinion about that. I do. Although, once again, I would 
just language it somewhat differently. I would say that there are things that I can say with great confidence to anyone. And then there are things that I suspect are true, but I cannot say with great confidence. So my thing is to only in public say things that I have great confidence in. However, I am now asking you to speculate in public. That's no problem. I'm happy to do that. Careful what you ask for. I'll just go on for another three hours without giving you a chance to say anything. (laughs) I'm happy to do that. But first, the thing that I have great confidence in is that my description of how to work with the senses and how to be happy in maximally in every possible way based on working with the senses and what happens to sensory phenomenology when you work with it in a certain way. I have great confidence in those statements. So I don't say inner experience. I just say sensory experience or even more broadly sensory motor experience. So I would say that at this point, the only statements that I feel comfortable with are statements about what happens to a human being's sensory motor experience when they apply certain focus procedures and develop certain focus skills for the purpose of optimizing happiness. I have great confidence in that paradigm. Yeah, so as far as sensory phenomenology goes, I think because the claims are modest, but also very industrial strength, I think it's good. So usually what happens with people that have deep contemplative experience is they have the perception that they've been given an insight into the nature of nature, something profound and deep about objective reality. So I don't make those claims. However, I strongly suspect that, in fact, that's true. (laughs) It's just I can't prove it. And whether it's true or not, in one sense, it's important, obviously. uh, But in another sense, it's not so important because the goal is being happy in the most wholesome way. And from that perspective, if it were to turn out that the belief of the mystic, that they have had an insight into the nature of nature, if that claim turns out to be not valid, it doesn't really matter because we never made that claim to begin with. Okay, but you're hedging now. I want to hear what you actually think about it. Well, let me just finish up the thought. So by not making these claims up front, or ever, (laughs) actually, we make it comfortable for the scientists to dialogue with us. If we make these claims up front, they're non-falsifiable, 
and they annoy the scientists and they break down what I hope will be the marriage of the millennium. So there's definitely reasons why I don't claim that the mystic knows deeply the nature of reality. So with all that having been said, do I, based on years of meditation practice, have a conjecture as to the nature of reality? And the answer is yes. My conjecture would be that it involves a couple of basic themes. One is the theme that there really aren't any things there. So thingness, which is very much part of what the human brain produces, probably is not a characteristic of what is. Probably what is a characteristic of what is is connectivity. So there's a vast lattice of connectivity. And what our brain does is give different distorted views of it, different very limited views of it. And we call it, I see the desk, or I'm aware of myself as Shinsen Yang, or I'm hearing the sound of the bird. All of those are just what happens when you don't see the full vastness and the full vacuity simultaneously. So I suspect that's what's out there. And there's actually two lattices or cones. I'm looking at the coffee cup now, so I'm looking at the telephone now. So if each of those represents a node on uh, the tip of the cone, if we go in one direction, that cone extends out into what in Buddhism is called pratitya samutpada, or conditioned co-arising, or suchness, or the causal net of connections, which also is characterized by no-thingness. It's just pure connectivity without actual things that are connected. So from each specific experience of my outer world, what I see, hear, or touch, that's like a, a node or a point or a tip of an iceberg that then extends out and back in time, or maybe out and forward in time also, I don't know but definitely expands until as you get towards the base of that particular cone, you come to the all that is what is, which I would not be surprised at all may represent a multiverse, not of things, of course, but of connections. So every individual thing that I see here or touch on the outside just represents the tip of a kind of lattice that extends until in the limit each thing becomes the same thing because they all sort of have their feet planted in the same totality. It's just that my nervous system has been evolved by Darwin to distort this.
So there's a similar lattice that extends on the inside. When I'm looking at the coffee cup now, I'm aware of an associational field, partially in mental talk, partially in body emotion, but mostly in mental image space, subliminal mental image space. There are these associations. It's in all three modalities, but primarily subliminal images. And each of those subliminal images reach out and create a network of their associations. And each one of those creates a network of their associations. It's a little bit like Huygens' concept of how light works, that each point in light becomes um, itself a source. So on the outside world, all of the sources sort of point towards a specific object that is what I see here feel. On the inside world, the way I make sense out of that is by having a oppositely directed cone that spreads out inside me and creates some sort of distorted and incomplete version of the reality cone that extends out into what is. So that there's actually a dance that each point of perception, if you trace it inwards, turns into an associational net inside your inner system that gets wider and wider. And if you trace it outwards, it's a causal net that is what lies behind it that gets broader and broader. And those two cones are constantly dancing together, which allows me to understand what the world is in a way appropriate for an adult human. But if I was a frog, it would be designed to do something somewhat different, to present what is in a way that's appropriate for a frog. Different retina, different emphasis on size, and speed, things moving fast that are about the size of a fly are going to be very, very real <laughs> if I'm a frog. And the rest of the pond I'm living in, well, not very real at all. Anyway, my suspicion is that there are these inversely directed lattices, causality coming towards us, association propagating within us. But in the end, it's not that there's a bunch of things out there or in here. It's that there are just arrows. There are just the pointings without things that are appointed to. So that would be my conjecture as to what reality is. Okay, so I asked you to speculate or conjecture, and that's very fascinating. It would be unfair for me to then criticize that, and I'm not going to do that. And at the same time, I want to ask some questions around that. So just bear with me. You know, when you were describing non-dual or who am I type practices, you very clearly described attention beginning to settle into the pre-processing level of the senses. 
so that you're aware of the raw input of the sensory world before it's been processed, or at least processed very much. Correct? Um, Yeah, that would be a way to put it. Yeah. And so, to me, the idea that you're able to, and it's certainly my personal experience, you can sit in that place of deep pre-processing of sensory experience, and it just makes sense that because that hasn't made it up to the higher levels of processing where things are turned into objects or they're turned into words or images of external things. It hasn't propagated up to that level of processing yet. You're experiencing a field that has a sense of no things being there and everything's connected because essentially it's just signals that haven't been processed yet or processed very much yet. And so those qualities that everyone everywhere describes of interconnectedness and no-thingness and tremendous fluidity and tremendous oneness, it all, to me, makes perfect sense as exactly what you described, as allowing awareness to sink to this very, very subtle level of sensory awareness. And to me, right there, that's enough to describe the whole of what you're experiencing, right? Without having to then say, and that's somehow what's really going on out there. Instead, we can say, that's what's going on within my experience of my sensory awareness, right? Well, and what you're doing is essentially doing what I always do. We say that that's enough. Right. And so, thank you, you know. What I'm trying to do is to ask you, what about your experience makes you feel like going further with that? Oh, why would I conjecture this is the way things are? Yeah, and I know, of course, you do tremendous amount of reading in physics and so on, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about from your own personal experience, what is it that drives you to say then, okay, and that is the way it could be externally as well? Well, I'm afraid it is from the physics. <laughs> yes. Uh, the description that we seem to be getting from the natural sciences sort of lines up with this. So, That's actually the main reason why I would uh, conjecture that um, that's what's actually there. Got it. Interesting. But you also have implied something very interesting. The way you just said all of that is a perfect segue into talking about some of the difference between quote, mindfulness and um, uh, self-inquiry, as we have defined them, which we admit is in a very limited way. Because here's an interesting thing. A person might say, oh, I get it. They're just staying at this early level of processing in order to experience the goodies that that brings. And that's fine because they... Those goodies are in the service of all of the healthy ways of being happy. So it's a legitimate re-engineering of things. 
But I can hear a skeptic saying something like, yeah, but what about the ordinary experiences of things that are on the surface? Doesn't that reflect reality better than this other thing? Now, we could get into a lot of interesting philosophical arguments about that. I don't see any compelling reason to preference the arising of somethingness as being in some way more real than the taste of primordial processing. But it's an interesting thing because remember I said that you asked me the relationship between the two kinds of practices. Yes. The appreciation practice and the self-inquiry practice of a certain kind. And I tried to explicate that by demonstrating two techniques that are actually in some ways rather similar, but one is more that form of mindfulness, the other is more the self-inquiry, by merely changing a couple of parameters by making something that was contrasting in a couple ways, we can actually sort of toggle back and forth between the two practices. That took me a long time to figure out how to structure that. But I think that would somewhat clarify the issue. But I'm realizing that I did not really explain what I meant by the notion that the two practices would, in some sense, converge to something similar. So the missing piece is that when you do the mindfulness practice, people tend to come to a point where they've soaked into the sensory field so much that it's like pouring water into a sponge. The sponge sort of gets soft and the inner and outer sensory experiences start to become sort of elastic and you become aware that things are constantly arising and they're constantly passing. And so even with the classic mindfulness practice, quote, you tend to come to a stage where your interest shifts from knowing the details, which is a discrimination clarity, to detecting the contour which is a sensitivity or detection clarity. And now what you become fascinated with is just detecting the onsets and the passings. But of course, where things come from and where they go to are the same place. So as you're looking to the next start, the next start, the next start, or aware of gone, 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 your attention is briefly being vectorially directed towards what precedes and follows each of those experiences. But that's exactly the same direction you're looking when you're trying to briefly look back and see, well, what's behind the seer, okay? So the mindfulness practice converges to an awareness of things arising and passing from a state of absolute rest that's always been there. 
and the self-awareness practice converges to a sense of an absolute rest, citta vritti nirota, that's always been there. And in both cases, a figure ground reversal occurs in which you say, I am not this inner activation and the world is not that outer activation. Both of us are actually this still point of the turning world that happens in mindfulness practice and it happens in a successful self-inquiry practice. So that's how I see them converging in the limit. Yes, that's very fascinating. Can I ask a few clarifying questions here? Sure. Again, we're going to speak a little fast and loose and imprecisely, just in the interests of time. But when one is practicing mindfulness, especially traditionally, that leads towards cessations. And when one is practicing non-dual type stuff, self-inquiry practices, that tends to lead to that sense of everything being tremendously normal, right? It's uh, all interconnected and there's a lot of oneness or total oneness, but it's also everyday mind, right? It's very not cessation. It's just a typical moment that's being perceived in a very holistic manner. So what is the difference, and maybe it's in the converging or not in the converging, but you talked about how they converge to a similar experience or maybe even the same experience, and yet these contrasting experiences of cessation or Niroda type stuff and a sort of perfection of the everyday kind of moment experience seem to be utterly different maybe even opposite directions. So I'm curious how you would talk about those differences and how they relate to mindfulness versus non-duality. Well, first of all, I think that there's a difference between what people experience and how they talk about it. Yes. And therein lies the rub because people can use similar language, but in fact be experiencing different things and conversely. So my impression of the classical non-dual practice is that you're being encouraged to find a true self that is outside of time and space. I mean, that's my reading of most of the Asian teachers on this subject. Am I incorrect? No, and maybe I'm asking the question in a way that isn't clear or doesn't make sense. But very often you're being directed, you know, sort of pointing out instruction to notice everyday mind, notice how this has always been here. Notice how you're not trying to have some kind of special experience. And very often they will point to things like nirvikalp or something like that as the sort of special experience that we're not trying to do. 
those are special yogic attainments. But in non-duality, you're just noticing everyday awareness, at least in the way I'm conceptualizing it, not one of these special experiences. How does that relate to the instruction of seeing the seer? Or being aware of awareness itself? Obviously, even if you're aware of awareness, in the way that we just described a few moments ago, you're kind of sinking down into these layers of pre-processing. There seems to be tremendous interconnectedness. There's not selfness or no thingness happening. However, you're not necessarily experiencing these total lights-out kind of moments, as I would define cessation, where there's just absolute nothingness and not even a knower of that nothingness. Instead, there is a continuous outside of time and space or concept perception of whatever's arising in the moment. Well, is it not the case that non-dual teachers ask their students to do a self-inquiry practice where you're being asked to turn awareness back on itself intentionally? That's one of the most common practices of that tradition, yes. Okay, so there's that. And then there's this other thing you're saying where you're talking about ordinariness, but it's not really ordinariness because obviously if it was really ordinariness, then everyone would be enlightened. So it must in some way be different from the 10 billion ordinarinesses that represent most people on this planet. Yet they're saying, well, it's not a cessation experience. The side of the pointing out that is saying, hey, cessation has nothing to do with this. Then what's making it different? Let me come back to your metaphor and see if I can describe it that way. So you've got the arrow of attention, and normally you've got the arrowhead end of that, looking at the objects, and then you've got the knock end, where the awareness is, and you've got the shaft. Now... Yeah, by the way, I'm going to just slightly say that the knock end points to where the awareness is, pure awareness is. It's not necessarily hanging on the knock end. Just like the head points to a sensory object, the knock end points in the direction of the um, true observer. Slight correcting of <laughs> languaging. Yes. So now if we spend one moment at the arrowhead end and one moment at the knock end, and then notice that the shaft part of it is a concept about space. It's a subtle mental image of distance. And then just let go of that and allow the arrowhead end and the knock end to just merge. Now you're having a non-cessation, wide-awake, non-dual experience. But alternatively... You're having a continuous micro-cessation inside each ordinary experience. This is why I'm asking you the question. Please say more about that. Wow, I don't know if I can. That's the source directly touching each ordinary thing. That's non-dual. 
in the sense of no separation of the formless source and uh, the form. So I'm assuming that's your experience. Actually, not that hard to show someone how to do. Um, I'm going to say that as you do that, it may be easy to have people get a sense of it. And if you can, that's really, really good. But you can't get away from the fact that there is a side to this practice called seeing that there's nothing that needs to be changed and a side to this practice that says we actually have to make radical change. You know, I agree with you strongly about that. My point was not that it's easy to show, and let's not go in that direction. Actually, I think it would be good to go in that direction because if it's easy to show, that's a really, really good thing. You've been successful in having relative uh, beginners contact that kind of thing? Sometimes. That's, like, great. So then you already know where this is going, but I'll just say it for the record. So then where's the growth after that? The growth after that is the ability to hold that through progressively more challenging sensory events. Yes, being able more or less to concentrate on it. To hold it in awareness, which measures the liberation aspect of things. But I'm going to say, to get back to your question, that this is not unrelated to cessation. It just represents a finer scale of cessation. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. So there are cessations that are just huge, that even are physiological in nature, where it's like lights out for a day or something, but your eyes are wide open and flies are crawling on them doesn't get to you, okay? Because I think that used to happen to Ramana Maharshi, right? Yes. Something like that? Yeah. It's a typical, maybe not typical, but that's a deep definition of of a nirvikalpa type state. That's right. So I would say to be that deep is highly desirable. It's a good thing. Now, that's sort of like a mega niroda that has physiological impact. But there's nano-nirodas that are so tiny that um, they just seem like the ordinary world. But the way that you know that it's different from the ordinary world is that as time goes on, the ordinary world becomes progressively lighter and thinner and lighter and thinner and lighter and thinner. And it's that lightness and thinness that I think is the quality that distinguishes the liberation where everything is sort of ordinary, but obviously not quite because then it would just be ordinary. And distinguishes that from some of these larger-scale cessation experiences. Now, what my own experience is, is actually several scales of cessation happening simultaneously. So as we're talking now, for example, I'm 
aware uh, if I were to just like do my very best to look at like this coffee cup just as a thing, right? I'm doing that now, but the fact is, as soon as I try to do that, it's still white and it's still sort of like it is, but it just seems pretty insubstantial. It's feather light and paper thin because I'm just seeing and there's not much somethingness to that. For it to become something more than that, I have to have uh, gaps in my concentration and I have to have tightening and self-interference in my visual field for it to seem like it's actually a thing. So I would say that I'm aware of nano-level cessations that just drench this cup as I'm looking at it. However, at the same time, I'm aware in my peripheral awareness of much larger cessation that is just sort of boring through this whole scene and self. This whole volume of time-space experience is getting crunched at a much more macroscopic level. And I'm talking to you and I'm not sitting still or have my eyes closed. So it's not big enough to um, like take me down completely, but it's still going on. And that's orders of magnitude bigger than the nano cessations that are inside the, uh, the coffee cup. But I'm aware of it as we're speaking. It's like God's just running his big thick hand through this scene and it's like just wiping it away <laughs> and then it reconstitutes. And for you, does that have a sort of rhythm to it? Um, well, you know, we were talking about the arrows, right? Yes. So it's a little bit related to the metaphor of that arrow, but if you were to imagine that um, instead of the arrow sort of pointing from some place to some place, if, if you were to imagine that the whole time-space volume is like a sphere. Well, let's just say the whole volume of your inner and outer experience. So there's this sense that there's a room around me. There's the sense that I have a body experience and I have mental image and mental talk. So all of that taken together, if you were to imagine that it's roughly spherical, just roughly. So there's a sense that in whatever direction my attention might turn, there's a shaft that goes from outside that sphere through like a diameter through the center of that sphere and then shoots out of the antipodal point on that sphere. This is once again obviously an image, but you're imagining that your inner and outer sensory experience is a sphere. Now pick any point on the surface of that sphere and imagine a diameter, a line going from that point through the center and then out the other end, which would be an antipodal point. If it were the north and south pole, it, those would be your antipodal point, but it could be any place on the sphere. Now imagine that instead of a line, it's a channel that bores through that volume of experience 
and there's nothing inside that channel and there's nothing outside that channel. If you look back or if you look forward through that channel, you're looking at the same place and that channel is connecting void to void. It's connecting the same point because time and space only exist inside that sphere. Outside of that sphere, everything is the same point, the still point. And so there's this awareness that there's this channel being bored through me and my world constantly that connects void to void and is like a breathing tube that there's constant access to that allows me to breathe fresh air no matter how full of shit my sensory sphere may be. So you're breathing the fresh air of the void. And regardless of the shit that I may be drowning in otherwise. And that's a big cessation. That's fairly large. Not nearly as big as the one that would be like, okay, now get medieval on my ass with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch and that's fine with me kind of cessation. Although I truly believe that every meditator should aspire to that and can attain that. But it's certainly much bigger than those nano cessations that make the world seem feather light and paper thin. Now, that's two different scales of cessation uh, that you're describing having simultaneously. Is there a third going on at the same time for you? Well, there could be in the sense that if I ride that channel out, (laughs) I'm aware that um, me and the world are drowning in God always. In other words, it just surrounds everything. Yes. The cessation surrounds the sphere, the current self and scene. And so it's like it's below in the unborn. Now, I assume if you were to um, direct your attention in that way, strong enough to have that experience, you would be not available for conversation for a little while. No, I, I might get that in dreamless sleep. But I typically don't get cessation hitting my physiology so hard that I am out of it, other than if I meditate during dreamless sleep. I probably would not be aware of external stimulus then, unless it was very strong. But otherwise, uh, some of these stimuli are available to you. Yeah, but like you say, they're pervaded by nano-nirvana, so... They don't really separate so much. Yeah, and this is, again, because it's so important in connecting mindfulness and non-duality, I'd love you to talk a little more, if you can, about what you're calling the paper thinness and feather lightness and the nano-nirvanas, because I'm imagining all the question marks that are arising for people. Wow. Well, first of all, let me ask you, I'm assuming... It all made sense to you, right? It matches your experience? Yes. 
So that's good because sometimes I don't know whether I'm talking nonsense or not. <laughs> Feather light and paper thin. Well, you can train yourself into it. I call it focus on rest and spaciousness. Big theme uh, in the jhana practices of Buddhism, early Buddhism. Big theme in a lot of the Tibetan practices, this spaciousness thing. But it's just a matter of what you uh, selectively attend to. Even a beginner can get a little sense of it. I can give you an operational way to do it. Let's do that. Well, let's say that you do a real traditional Buddhist jhana practice, J-H-A-N-A, centered around anapana sati or awareness of breath at your nostrils, let's say. So that's a practice a lot of people do. So you focus on the sensation in your nostrils. At first, you have a lot of thoughts and you're constantly drawn to discomfort in your body and sleepiness and not much concentration. Uh, but then you stay with it and you're able to get some sense of being a little bit focused. You taste something that you're going a little deeper, focusing on that very small sensation. At some point, a certain aspect of sensory clarity starts to come in, which is a discrimination aspect. You're able to discriminate different qualities of, is it warm, is it moist, is it the opposite of that, etc., etc. So more sensory clarity starts to enter in, plus you have a sense of concentration. Now, so mindfulness taste is starting to come on in this very small breath practice. Yes. A certain kind of concentration, which is the ability to focus for an extended time on something small. That particular dimension of concentration is growing. Now, I'm going to claim that concentration is broader than that. It can entail focusing on something large for a long period of time or focusing on something large for a brief period of time or focusing on something small for a brief period of time. But in this classical practice, we're developing what some people define as concentration, but I say is one-fourth of concentration. You're developing the ability to focus on something small for a long period of time. Classically, your attention didn't wander from the tip of your nose essentially at all for four hours. Now you're developing shamatha. So that's one kind of concentration. And you're developing clarity, more sensory richness in that experience. And albeit perhaps indirectly, you're developing equanimity because you have to allow all sorts of stuff to come and go in the background, basically everything. Everything in the universe other than what's happening at the tip of your nose is going to try to get your attention. And by letting it expand and contract in the background, you're developing a type of equanimity or, deta quote, detachment. I call it background equanimity. So now you're developing these core skills by doing that practice. At some point you develop a detection skill, which is also a kind of discrimination skill. You notice that 
there's sort of an ordinary, somewhat coagulated, materially solid sensation of the breath. And then there's something that's different. It's the actual instant of contact with the breath before there's even microcoagulation around the periphery of the actual touch of the breath in your nose, you discover that the actual touch of the breath is so subtle and so light that it could almost be characterized as there but not there. Now, that is often interpreted by people as a problem. I can't detect the breath anymore. But actually, you're now, you still can detect it. But the sensation is the actual real-time touch of the breath. Have you at this point sunk down into some of the pre-processing of that sensory experience? I would say that is exactly correct. This is the before the area around the place where the breath is touching, before that has a chance to react by subtly tensing, and even that tension is very subtle, but there's a subtle tensing that we do around any kind of touch, typically, that's reactivity. But you know, we tend to think reactivity is our thoughts and emotions, but there are many much more subtle forms of reactivity. So that sort of tightening around touch, subtle tightening around touch, before that happens is the actual touch. And you start to notice that in the breath. And as I say, often at that point, people say, oh, the breath has gone away. I can't detect it anymore. No, you're still detecting it, but you're detecting it as it is. And you find that that feather-light, paper-thin, actual, real-time touch of the breath is pleasant, but not in the sense that it is intrinsically blissful. It's pleasant in the sense, by way of contrast to every other quality in your body, it doesn't hurt. Yes, it's almost indescribably soft. This, of course, is correlated with the classic Buddhist insight into the nature of suffering. You realize how uncomfortable your body's been even when you thought it was comfortable relative to the feather-light, paper-thin of the actual touch of the world. Now you get that in the very light touch of the breath, and now you hold that in high concentration. And what tends to happen is it starts to infect the rest of your body, because who would want anything else? Who would want a coagulated mass of misery that even the intense pleasures of orgasm in their coagulated form actually hurt relative to the actual pleasure of sex, which is feather light and paper thin, just like that. So now 
that's what you're focusing on. Now your body enters what's called pasadti or prashrabti, which is this, well, it means lightness. I didn't just make up the word. And then it spreads from there to your mental image, your mental talk, physical sight, physical sound. All of see, hear, feel is now feather light and paper thin. And that's why the jhana practices can bring liberation in theory because you eventually realize why it's feather light and paper thin because it's made up of trillions and trillions of nano nirvanas. Well, thank you for unpacking that. There's quite a bit more I would like to ask. But I notice, time-wise, we are at the end of our program for today. So, thank you, Shinzen. That was uh, tremendously fascinating and fun. And I hope you'll be open to uh, coming on to another program soon. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. 
If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R.com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 